Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm golf course industry editor-in-chief Guy Cipriano, and I'm here with our managing editor, Matt Lowell, for the first time in weeks, literally, Matt, that you've been around here. This is going to be a great episode of Greens with Envy. This is number 30. 30. We're getting old. And first off, Matt, how are you doing, and what is it like being back home? Well, my parents still have Margot, who is almost five, and so... If we did not have a cat who liked to walk on our heads in the middle of the night and keep us up at night and wake us up in the morning, I'd be sleeping incredibly well. I slept very well in Florida and North Carolina and Vermont on the trip, but now that I'm home, the old mewling cat keeps me awake. Well, before we get to golf courses, a few uh, housekeeping items here. Our August issue is going live any day soon. It's a terrific issue it's the second biggest issue of the year a lot of great stuff in there including a cover story written by our intern i guess he's our former intern now because he got done a few days ago jack leckler we have our first turf reports of 2021 we're really excited about these and the first one's about poa annua and speaking of turf reports we've gotten tremendous response on the two surveys yes we've already sent out well over 200 respondents and Look in your inbox in the next few weeks for the third turf reports we're doing this year. It'll appear in our November issue, and it's about disease control. So we're really excited to ramp up our data game, Matt. And just like the State of the Industry report that is published in every January issue, these individual reports throughout the year, the more people who respond to those, and it only takes five or ten minutes, the more people who respond, the more data points we have, the more data points we have, the better the information will be for everybody. So if you have five or ten minutes, fill it out and uh, help the industry as a whole. And the more charts in the magazine, the more or the less you have to read the stuff we write. Well, just kidding there. Anyway, uh, speaking of writing, we are getting ready to release details about how to submit an article for our sixth annual Turf Heads Takeover issue. If you're not familiar with Turf Heads Takeover, it runs every December and it's Content submitted by you all, the Mm -hmm. people that listen to this podcast, follow us on social media, read our print magazine, look at our e-newsletters. Everybody in the industry is encouraged to submit an article about whatever they want. It just has to be 600 words or more with applicable images. And if there's a topic you feel passionately about, send Matt and I an email with some ideas or even send the article and we'll work with you and we'll get you published in a national publication. And speaking of Turf Heads Takeover, another thing that we've been promoting since early February, and it's going to come to a finalization, at least for this cycle, is that we're doing the printed Turf Heads Guide to Grilling in that December issue. And that's the first time we will have our reader submit a recipe guide. That's going to be a lot of fun. If you have a recipe, even if it's just a blend of seasonings, send it in. And if it is published in that little pullout guide, uh, we have some really, really cool Turf Heads Guide to Grilling sponsored by Golf Course Industry and Aquade Solutions swag to send out to everybody whose recipes are chosen to be printed in the issue. Those are those are really nice pieces, that's all I'm going to say. And we'll leave it at that, and we will cut, Matt, no pun intended, given the swag we're giving away, mm. to the meat of this conversation. Wow. You really just told them what they're getting. Anyway, you had quite a journey. <laughs> it was a two-week journey. With a rental car up and down the East Coast. 
Yeah. They start it in the state that has the most golf courses in the United States. So tell well, tell our listeners uh, what went down in Florida. Yeah, so my parents live in uh, uh, my mom's in Florida most of the time. My dad splits between here and and Florida, and so they wanted to take our five year old for a month, and they're in week three. And his parents don't live in the villages, by the way. No, no. <laughs> Not in the village. We wish they did, though, because they'd have a really cool place to play golf. No, no, no. Nothing against the people who work at those courses. I just, I'm glad my parents don't live in the villages. Well, I hope my dad retires to the villages one day. Five minutes in, we've come off the rails. But they wanted to take Margot for a month. They're in week three. It seems to be going well. And so rather than hop on a plane, we figured we would just take a road trip. And so Carolyn, my wife, and I drove down from Cleveland to. Orlando. We stopped actually in Ridgeland, South Carolina, which it was the dead of night. I didn't have time. I didn't have connections, but Ridgeland, South Carolina, home to a pretty famous golf course guy. A recently famous golf course. Yes, yes. And that is? Congaree, yeah. which hosted the PGA Tours Palmetto Championship this year yeah. in place of the Canadian Open, which was unfortunately canceled for a second straight year. Yeah, so I did not see Congaree. We were about 30 miles from Hilton Head. I did not, unfortunately, get to see the Morrigans, uh, Tim and Karen, uh, or see any of the Hilton Head courses. We motored down to Florida. We got Margo off. We got uh, Carolyn back on a plane to come up to Ohio. And then I drove to Miami, and I spent a few days for an upcoming story with P.J. Salter and his three great assistants, uh, Drew Camper, Mike Hines, and Mike Smith, and uh, his family as well, his wife Lisa and their three beautiful daughters. That'll be in an upcoming issue of Golf Course Industry. And so I don't want to get into the Salters family story a whole lot. That's, that's going to be in the issue. But I spent three days at Riviera. and The what, East Coast Riviera. The, the, the Coral Gables Riviera, the Donald Ross Riviera. And I've, I've only it was been tremendous. to the George Thomas Riviera. <laughs> On, on the West Coast. So I guess Matt and I now have the two prominent R- Rivieras right. covered. So if folks haven't been to Miami and Coral Gables, two Donald Rosses basically across the street from each other. He went down in the 20s. He designed Riviera. He designed the Biltmore Country Club right across the street, which is part of a gorgeous, I think, 12 or 13-story hotel uh, that's so old it has all the old stairs, and you can actually just go from floor to floor. It's really cool. I actually found a... a old photo of Donald Ross on the course with his little tiny mustache, which about 20 years later, you could not get away with uh, wearing because someone else popularized that style of mustache. They copied it from Donald Ross. Well, yeah, of course, but everything's been copied from (laughs) Donald Ross in the last hundred years. God. But other than the fact that there is, is next to really no hill change and height change in topography, in the entire state of Florida, what a couple of beautiful golf courses. And and I can speak much more to Riviera than to Biltmore because I only walked Biltmore, uh, the cart path at night when it was dark. But Riviera, gorgeous course. They've done some great renovations there. They did a huge clubhouse renovation there. And I cannot speak highly enough of PJ Salter and the crew that he has put together there. Uh, his assistant, Drew Camper is going to be a superintendent whenever he wants to be, whenever he finds the right fit, he's he's ready. He came from Desert Mountain, and he was at Desert Mountain before he went to Riviera. And then uh, Mike Hines is also going to be a superintendent whenever he wants to be. Mike Smith is a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I feel like all three of those guys really could be uh, superintendents in the next few years. 
great program there, great people. And I didn't get a chance to play it, but I feel like I know the course better than if I had played it because PJ and I drove around the course probably 10 or 12 times in three days. That's it? I don't know. I wasn't counting. It felt like at least 10 or 12 times. There's a lot to unpack there, but you mentioned that you walked the Biltmore Golf Course Mm -hmm. on the cart path at night. Mm -hmm. It takes some courage to walk on a Florida golf course at at night when you think about some of the golf course critters that may be lurking in South Florida. Well, I always carry a flashlight, even if it's just my phone flashlight. There were, I think, two signs for lookout for gators. But here in Northeast Ohio, uh, skunks are nocturnal. And I see a lot of skunks on my nightly walks, and I see a lot of deer on my nightly walks. And the deer don't do anything. They just stay where they are or run away. The skunks, though, always raise their tails and look at you. And I feel like every time I see a skunk at night, I'm pleading with it. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do anything to you. You're not going to do anything to me. We're just going to kind of circle around. We're going to walk away from each other. You're not going to spray me. I'm not going to do anything to you. We're cool. And so I'm walking around the course. I don't see anything. I'm like, maybe there's a gator in the pond over there. But if there is, he's where he is or she's where she is. And uh, I feel a more immediate threat from the nocturnal Ohio skunks than I did from any maybe their gators. One of my first stories at golf course industry was about alligator management on golf courses. Mm-hmm. And then the next year I wrote about read sn- that. snake management on golf courses. I've read that too. And I really overcame a lot of fears or anxieties doing the reporting and research for those stories. Basically, if you don't bother them, they're not going to bother you. True. And it's just like, Oh, what is it? It, I think it's yellow jackets. I'm deathly afraid of anything that can sting me because I I think I'm mildly allergic. When I was about 10 or 12, I got maybe about 10 or 12 stings in my backyard, and I think I actually passed out um, because of the allergies. And so I will, like, freeze and back away slowly. But I just learned that yellow jackets, A, the males, can't sting you. Their stingers are basically what amounts to their their genitalia and so they'll try to sting you but it's very dull and it it won't go in the female yellow jackets will sting you but they'll only sting you if they feel pressed and they might climb up your shorts or your skirt to to try to get to whatever they're trying to get to and if they feel pressed there that's when they sting you so a if you walk around with rubber bands on your your ankle cuffs, you're going to be fine. And B, uh, as long as you don't make a, a yellow jacket feel pressed, you know, you're good to go. Now, wasps and hornets are something else entirely. They're they're just they're angry cusses, and I don't care for them at all. But you know, it it does go to show that in nature, most of the time, if you do not bother whatever the creature is, whether it's a bear or an alligator or a yellow jacket or a skunk, uh, they'll they'll leave you alone. Okay, another housekeeping item mm-hmm. appearing in our September issue will be a story written by John Torsiello about managing those big furry critters that you encounter on northern golf courses. Mm-hmm. I haven't read that one yet. It's in the system, and it's going to be a very informative article for our readers who have to deal with things like bears and elk and deer and coyote and fox damage is huge in the Northeast. So look, look for that article. In our September issue. I guess I'll read that one. Matt, other impressions of Florida. Obviously, it's the summer. It's not the peak golf season. 
in the Sunshine State, but what was the vibe down there? How are the courses doing? What's the golf activity like right now from what you could pick up? At this point, obviously, everything is a little more relaxed just because when I was down there, I think the temps were anywhere between 85 and 90, but it felt like 95 to 100 with the humidity. The rounds, of course, will pick up a little bit more as we move into October, November, December, January. But at least in the limited number of courses that I visited and the limited number of folks who I talked with down there, all trends are still pointing to at least summer 21 rounds being equal to summer 20 rounds. And that's a good sign for the industry. As long as the rounds hold steady, they don't even have to go up over last summer because last summer was such a boom. As long as they hold steady, uh, I think we're, we're in a good place as an industry, uh, certainly an in interest and the number of folks coming out, the number of uh, rounds being played, the amount of dollars being spent on the course and on equipment, uh, all, all good signs. It hasn't slowed down yet. Uh, 2020 was an anomaly in mm -hmm. more ways than we have time to talk about. But really, I've been thinking about it. And if you want to gauge how the industry's doing and what the activity level is like at courses, it might be better at this point to compare 2021 rounds played each month to what things were like in 2019. See, I don't know. I, th I think they'll certainly be up over 2019. I think the longer you can compare to the anomaly boom that was 2020 and the longer that those numbers are favorable uh, this year compared to last year, I think that's – compare it to 2020 as long as you can. You know, maybe there will be a drop-off, but comparing 2021 to 2019 doesn't even seem like a fair fight because 2021 is going to win. No, so I think when the industry does settle into some sort of long-term situation here, I think we're looking at uh, somewhere between what the activity was like during 2019 and what the activity was like during the real heavy play summer months of 2020. And if the industry mm -hmm. can get somewhere between those two uh, long-term, that's much better than the industry was doing when we started 2020. Yeah, yeah. We could talk about this on another Greens with Envy, but... I mean, it was literally 18 or 20 pages in the January issue of the State yep. of the Industry Report. So we could we could de dedicate probably every issue to topics around that subject matter. It's a little bit different, but being in South Florida in July is sort of like being in Vermont in December or January. So it's really tough to, to know how things are going by being on... On the ground in the Sunshine well, State we'll, in the we'll, summer. We'll get to Vermont in a few minutes. Yeah, so another teaser there. Some of the folks who I talked with up there, because I was there as well on my trip, they got three feet of snow in one snowfall. I don't know if it was overnight, but it was. I think it was overnight. Basically waking up to three new feet of snow. So comparing Vermont in the winter to Florida in the summer, there are certainly different weather extremes. Now, I did not go to Vermont immediately after being in Florida, after leaving PJ and his crew at Riviera, saying goodbye to the beautiful room at the Biltmore that I stayed in. I drove up the coast. I went to my old haunts in North Carolina. I worked in Rocky Mount out of the uh, out of college. Rocky Mount, among other things, uh, home to AquaAid Solutions. They've got their world headquarters right in uh, kind of on the edge of the town. It's a big old rural farm town about an hour east of Raleigh. I did not play any golf. While I was in North Carolina, I just ran out of time. I went on some walks and runs. 
You, however, were in North Carolina not too long ago for a variety of reasons. Well, before we get to that, Matt, you're leaving out a big detail of your South Florida experience. You spent a few nights in South Beach, right? Uh, I mean, I didn't party. I went out to a I Cuban mean, the restaurant. Wife was, the wife was at home. The, the kids were with uh, the grandparents, right? Yeah, I went, I went to a Cuban restaurant. And I sat at the bar and ate dinner. <laughs> That's about it. I had Cuban black bean soup. I had, uh, uh, was it, uh, I don't even remember what I had. It was avocado chicken or something. Um, no, I had avocado, salmon avocado. If you know anything about Matt and I, you know that we're not the type of people that would be hanging out at South Beach late at night. I'm 37 years old, maybe a 22 or 23. We probably didn't have the money at that age to do it. No, I would have done it on the cheap. Can you do South Beach on the cheap? (laughs) You don't drink and you go to one place. Anyway, so a few weeks before Matt was in North Carolina, yes, I, I, I was in the, the Tar Heel State, and I'll actually be back there in a few days. Wow, things go quick, but uh, the, the purpose of my uh, time in North Carolina, it was just a two-day trip, was I, I spent some time at Myers Park Country Club working on the third Enduring Greatness story sponsored by Toro. It's a, if you're not familiar with the series, it's a look at how uh, clubs and facilities that have been around for hundred years and Myers Park started in 1921. So it's a hundred year old club now, uh, how they've evolved over time and what role the golf course maintenance team and equipment plays in the club's evolution. And it was just, I was super excited when uh, Myers Park was selected as the course that we got to profile for the third part of the series. Cause I, I know Scott Kennan, the director of golf course operations a bit from speaking with him at some Carolina shows, and I, I always enjoyed conversations with him, and I knew that he ran a high-level operation at Myers Park, but really one of those things that didn't really hit me until I I got there. It's five miles from downtown Charlotte, and it is just an amazing neighborhood, tree-lined, uh, you know, stately-type homes, and and the golf course is a key, the country club is a key part of the neighborhood, and the country club is one of the you know, high-profile country clubs in in the Charlotte area. And Charlotte, as everybody knows, is one of the faster-growing cities in the United States. If uh, they're not over a million population in the metro area, or metro or municipal. Well, just in the... Uh, it, it's it's huge. I think it's municipal population, Yeah, within actually. the city yeah. limits, and this yeah. is in the story, the, the population now is just under 920,000. So it'll be a million-person city in the actual city limits. Probably not before too long. The way things Probably are growing and based on all the five years, all the construction yeah. I saw when I was down there. So got to spend uh, the better part of a morning and an afternoon with uh, Scott Kennan and the course superintendent Jeremy Piles and the assistant superintendent Bobby Sabor and John Wells. And what a terrific team! And it's a course that's undergone a lot of changes over its hundred years. I mean, it, it had A. W. Tillinghast there. It had Donald Ross there. George Cobb was there. Bobby Weed was there, Richard Mandel was there, Chris Spence is there. A lot of architects have worked on that that golf course, and it's just one of those clubs that m- members absolutely love. I, there's always seems to be a waiting list and a high demand for tee times there. Uh, it's like I said, just in a great location in a great neighborhood. Uh, got to learn a lot about how they maintain super high level uh, Tiff Eagle Bermuda grass greens and the Bermuda grass fairways and. You think about it, a 100-year-old course in, in Charlotte, you've really seen the evolution of turf grass management because that is in the transition zone. It does get cold there. It does get super hot there. It gets sticky there. You have 
almost every type of pest and disease imaginable. And I, when I was doing research for the story, it started with uh, sand greens and then common Bermuda grass greens and then bent grass greens. And then just a few years ago, they did the uh, conversion to ultra dwarf Bermuda grass mm. greens. So it was interesting to, to study the course and learn about the, the uh, evolution of the turf grass or some zoysia grass and some of the teas. So a lot of different um, things going on there. It's this, uh, the golf course is pretty landlocked. I, I think it's like somewhere around maybe 160 acres total. The club owns there, maybe 110 of that is for the the golf course. And just uh, Scott's done some great things in his, boy, he's been there for over a decade. I think he's been there since t- 2008. I think it's 13 mm-hmm. years. So he's, you know, the, the last in a job like that, that long really shows that you have a director of golf course operations who, who knows all sides of the business. And when you get to a club at that level, that's really, really big. That's that type of revenue number that has that type of clubhouse operation and pool operation and tennis operation uh, to do a job like the one that Scott Kennan has. It's way more than just turf. I mean, he's constantly in, in meetings and conversations because it's a club that's always reinvesting in its facilities. And, you know, the, the golf course is the prize facility there and they're doing a huge clubhouse renovation right now actually started the day I was there. So that's, <laughs> that's going to take Perfect some time. Timing. And, uh, it was uh, great to see some of the new equipment, especially on the electric end that Scott is integrating into the operation. So look for that story in our September, uh, August issue, the great August issue that just came out. Boy, these months are blending together. And uh, before I, I spent some time with Scott, the, uh, the previous afternoon, I got to see our friend Matthew Wharton. I was going to say, you made one little detour. You were not just at Myers Park. You went to Carolina Golf Club. Why did you go see our back page columnist, America's Greenkeeper, Matthew Wharton? Well, every time we're in Charlotte, we go and see Matthew. You know, it had been a few years since we've been in, in Charlotte, but Matthew, uh, seeing him is always a part of a Charlotte trip for us. Got to spend some time with his lovely wife, Darlis, who works there as an accountant. And She's actually, doing well. You know, when I, when I got there, Matthew was out on the uh the tractor it was a monday and tuesday it was the tuesday after fourth of july so it was july 5th so the golf course was closed for a few days to do heavy cultural practices and let me tell you they were doing heavy cultural practices at carolina golf club matthew was out on the tractor doing uh, the most aggressive verticut i think i've ever witnessed on fairways i'm sure people have done more aggressive ones but to really see uh, what they were tearing up was pretty jarring so matthew was on the tractor when i got there i, I spent probably 30 to 45 minutes talking with Darlis, who's just an amazing human being, and we won't go into it too much here on the podcast, but she's overcome a lot in the last last mm-hmm. year, and it was great to see her. Uh, she loves the game of golf. Like I said, works at uh, Carolina Golf Club, so she's she's in the golf industry just like her husband. And you know, as Matthew and his team were doing these heavy cultural practices, I got out the notepad, and I'd never done this at Carolina Golf Club, and because the, the course was closed, it, it was awesome. I walked every hole, one through eight, 18. It's a Donald Ross design. Hmm. Chris Spence worked there when they did a renovation restoration about a decade ago. And I really got to study the the golf course because there weren't golf balls flying around all over the place. I I didn't have to worry about chasing my bad shots or reading putts. So actually the best way to learn a golf golf course is not to play it, Matt. It's to take the notepad, you know, when nobody's around, walk it center line from first to 18th green and had i had more time i probably would have walked it center line from 18th green to first tee backwards but uh you know very uh densely populated area of charlotte but just a a lovely piece of land matthew and his team 
do an outstanding job. And you could see some of the Donald Ross that was still there, uh, you know, trees border the property because, because it's in that, that urban area. So you're really close to downtown Charlotte, but you feel secluded from it. Uh, just a, it, it's called a golf club and the people that belong there. Yeah. They have a pool and they have a, a clubhouse, but it's not the huge pool and clubhouse operation that you would see at a more of a family club like Myers park. The people that come to Carolina golf club come to play a heck of a lot of golf which if you're a member of a golf club where you're playing a heck of a lot of golf, I would think it's great to have Matthew Wharton as your golf course superintendent because Matthew loves the game of golf as much as anybody I met in the golf industry. And he's also a heck of a writer, so that was another reason why I was there. You know, Last year, Matthew, who is our back page columnist, America's Greenkeeper, won a Turf and Ornamental Communicators Association Award for okay. his – his columns. Yeah, it's called TOCA. There really is an organization called TOCA. Uh, our national accounts manager, Russ Warner, is the president of TOCA. For a few more months, yeah. And he's very passionate about it, and we're involved in it. And yeah, it was great to see last year Matthew get that recognition for his awesome columns. And I said, Matthew, we're not going to send the award to you. We're going to find a way to personally give it to you. And that was our uh, first time in Charlotte since Matthew won that award last summer. So we, we gave it to him, and he hopped off the tractor, and him and I did a, f- a photo shoot and a meet and greet, and uh, just great seeing him in person and his wife again. And it was one of those where you wish, wish you had more time and wish that Matthew wasn't so busy you know, doing the things that the golf course needs done on, on the days that it was closed because, like a lot of golf courses, a lot of people are playing Carolina Golf Club, and the demand on the golf course is really high. So when you do get those three or four – maintenance days it's important to take advantage of them and they were they were working almost till dark and i I should also add when i was at myers park it was closed that week too for the heavy cultural practices so just in that week that uh i was there so i was there for one day but in those seven days scott kennan and his team were going to airify the ultradorf bermuda grass greens three times in seven days yep but that's it for the year that's the only disruption to the greens after that One of the odd things in our job is that we write a lot about these cultural practices and programs, but we don't really get to visit golf courses too often when they're going on. So it was just a great opportunity to see, you know, especially in the heat of summer in Charlotte, North Carolina, the transition zone, you really see just how hard our readers work. And we know it, but it really hits home when you have to chug, you know, basically 40 ounces of water an hour just to to work out. It's hot. It, that you have he, to keep yourself. I mean, really, it, it is. It's not the most glamorous part of the job doing uh, work on the course when it's closed in July in in a place like Charlotte, North Carolina. But you know, it makes me even realize more just how hard everybody in this industry works. And I, I worked on a golf course, but you know, I only worked there fifteen to twenty hours a week around my full time job. And you think about it, you see people working those fifty, sixty, seventy hour weeks in the the, the heat of summer in Charlotte. That's not easy, but on the other end, when you get to October and maybe it's like 25 degrees in some places, it's 50 to 60 degrees in Charlotte, and you have those just days where there would be nowhere else you'd want to be uh, outside. So nowhere in this country has a perfect, comfortable climate year-round besides maybe San Diego and maybe parts of the Pacific Northwest, although it's been really hot there. So it's just part of the job working in the elements, and anytime we can see our readers working in the elements – like uh, Scott Kennan and Matthew Wharton's teams were, that helps us come back here and do the job better. Real quick aside, before we get into 
the third state. Yeah, enough about me. Let's get back to your travel. When you when you were just talking about hard work and outdoor labor, this was a question I think a few weeks ago on the Not So Superintendent podcast. Always enjoy those guys. In uh, now they're separated. Ones in New York and ones in North Carolina. Would you rather? And you you've worked a lot more golf course maintenance than I have. Would you rather walk mow fairways? For 12 hours or dig irrigation trenches for six hours walk mow fairways just ignore the logistics it's just for for the sake of being having to be out on the course for a long long period of time you're walking constantly just you're walk mowing fairways for 12 hours or half that time digging irrigation trenches for six hours which would you rather what does my boss need me to do, and what's more important to the operation of the course? They're equally important for the sake of this hypothetical. Well, Matt, you know my personality. Your desk is right by my desk. You know I have trouble sitting still. You know that I'm an active, on-the-go on the person. So okay. I would, and my job when I worked golf course maintenance primarily was walk mowing tees because I'd mm-hmm. get out of the newspaper at 1 a.m. and have to be at the golf course at you know, 5.30, 6 a.m., and I knew on those days I was working both jobs that maybe I wouldn't get my workout in. So I loved to walk mow tees because I would be at least uh, burning some calories and doing some physical activity. So I would take the one where I'm in constant motion okay. as opposed to the one where I'm at one place. But everybody's different. And, again, it's what would be the most valuable thing to the operation. Again, would both, shape the answer both to that equally important in the state. Okay, so you would, you would walk mow fairways, which seems like a sort of punishment, but – where are we doing this? Are we doing this in Charlotte in July? Are we doing this in Charlotte in October? Are we doing this in, in Florida in December, too? But no, I, even if it was one of those brutally hot days, I think I'd rather be on the go moving than just yeah. being at one place. Well, the, the not-so-superintendent guys are now on Long Island and in Asheville. So let's just say Long Island or Asheville, North Carolina. Those aren't as brutal as a Charlotte or a South Florida in terms of heat. Heat no. bothers me way more than cold i'd rather you know be outside on a zero degree day than a 98 degree day with humidity so i i would because of my personality and me being an active person i would take the the walk mowing the fairways how about you i'd probably go the same way i'm just not much of a like i i equate physically digging irrigation trenches with being on the beach and doing the work to build a sandcastle i think there's a lot of the same movements obviously Digging the the irrigation ditches are a lot bigger and a lot more involved and bigger tools. But I don't enjoy being on the beach and digging sandcastles. So I don't think I'd enjoy digging for irrigation for six hours. I think I'd rather just go on a 12-hour walk, even if I have to walk mo. That's one of the wonderful things about golf course maintenance, if you really think about it, and working on a golf course is that you can almost find a, a job or assignment for everybody's personality type. If you think about it, some people, and you see this a lot with the retirees that work on a golf course, they just want to sit on a greens mower or fairway mower or rough mower for however many hours. You have some people that, like myself when I worked there, that wanted to be moving around. You had some people that maybe have a construction background or or really are do-yourself type people that want to be digging or working on something in in, in the shop. And you have some people now that, are real technical and data-driven, and they're going to be more those type of jobs in the industry. And the, the, you, there are people that like 
plant materials and, and flowers and ornamentals. And, the, you know, I, I met the horticulturist Aaron at, at Myers Park Country Club, and the, they found a great job for her at the, at the golf course and what her interests are. So people say that it's really tough to find people in golf course maintenance, and that's true, and that's true for almost every industry right now relying on an hourly worker. But one of the great things about golf course maintenance is that there's so many different fits for people. And if you're really, you know, one of those people that, doesn't want people doing the same thing every day you can find you you can really make it non-monotonous for the workers too where they're mm-hmm. not doing the same thing every day you know I, I said i like to mow tees every day but i also helped out with bunkers and some winter projects and and that type of thing so uh that's a really interesting question they posed and yeah i'd like to know who's walking walk mowing fairways so. well i think it was is yeah. this is this paul it's a hypothetical is this paul latshaw congressional <laughs> U.S. Open days? <laughs> it's a hypothetical. Hypothetical golf course is where it is. So, so. Anyway, from North Carolina, Matt, yeah. you, you drove north. Yeah, so I actually rented a car. Uh, rented what type a, of car? It was a uh, 2021 uh, Toyota RAV4, and I picked it up with about 2,100 miles, and I returned it with about 6,200 miles. Apparently, you don't have to change the oil on those things till you hit 8,500 miles. But the maintenance light comes on at 5,000 miles. So then you got to take it in and get this light turned off, which we didn't do. Have you ever met anyone that's changed an oil on a rental car while they've had it? No, which is why I actually asked. I'm like, I'm, I'm putting about 4,000 miles on this car. Do I need to take it in? And they told me that you don't have to change the oil till 8,500. So that was that. So, yeah, we were up in Vermont. We stayed in Heartland, which is right next to Windsor in the middle of the state, right along the Connecticut River. We wound up going up to Burlington a little bit. The first golf course I saw, and I didn't even put it on the the format here because we didn't walk a lot of the course, but Heartland and Windsor are about 30 to 35 minutes, maybe even a little less, from Dartmouth. And so the first day after we arrived, we arrived on a Saturday night on Sunday morning, Carolyn and I drove over to Dartmouth College, which, fun fact, has the oldest student newspaper in the United States. The Dartmouth has been published since 1799. Not the oldest daily newspaper. I think that's Yale. But uh, the Dartmouth College newspaper since 1799. And Dartmouth, of course, home to a pretty famous golf course that is no more guy. I think we talked about this on we a greens have. with Envy last year. I don't think we need to yeah. redress so re- I actually readdress that ramp. We we walked around campus and I really didn't have any bearings on where we were going and we stumble on the golf course. There is no sign. Uh it is overgrown. There were a few frisbee golf baskets that I saw. I took maybe two photos and our original plan was to walk part of the course, but then we discovered this about a hundred acre, it's called Pine Park, and it's just wonderful pine needle and mulch uh, ground surrounded by these old, beautiful pines. A lot of it is hard up against the Connecticut River. It's just over on the New Hampshire side. And went on a wonderful, probably 40-minute walk in the woods before we walked back through campus to the car. So that was the the first golf course, quote-unquote, that I saw. Apparently, they are going to maintain two holes of uh, 
of the the course there for the Dartmouth men's and women's golf teams, which I'm sure they'll attract a lot of uh, a lot of top golfers with with two practice holes. But be like a football player going to a college where maybe they only have like uh, two or three weight machines. Yeah. Good luck with that, Dartmouth. Yeah, didn't didn't play anything there. Obviously, there was nothing to play, but did wind up playing three other courses in Vermont, New Hampshire. Vermont has, I believe, it's sixty six golf facilities in the state, and I think twenty seven of them, if I remember correctly from my reporting, are nine holers. And everything I went to was a nine holer. Apparently, more traditional eighteen hole championship length golf is a little farther south in Vermont and New Hampshire. We didn't make it that far closer to Massachusetts. So the first course I went to was Bellows Falls Country Club in Bellows Falls, Vermont, and uh, made a tea time over the phone. Jerry Dennis, he's great, retired, uh, I believe he was a retired school superintendent. Paul Salisky is the superintendent there. He gave me impromptu swing advice, uh, getting off the back of his his mower at one point. So that was, it was appreciated. It was a good tip. So Bellows Falls. That's actually a great idea. Uh, if you're a golf course superintendent <laughs> or someone on your crew <laughs> is really good at golf. Right. To, to give a customer a swing tip every now and then. In fact, I was interviewing somebody for an upcoming uh, web story I'm going to do who works as a vice pre- president for a golf course management company. And yeah. he's involved in culture and coaching. And one of the ideas he, he suggested to improve uh, customer satisfaction is that if you're working on the maintenance team and you see somebody hit a ball in the woods and you have a bunch of balls in your cart, go over and, and, <laughs> and give a ball or two to that, that golfer. It's not a bad idea, so you don't have to hunt. Plus, it speeds up uh, pace of play a yep. little bit too, yeah. Uh, so Bellows Falls, according to their course literature, founded in 1922 as a six-hole course at Barber Park was an amusement and rec park in Saxton's River, Vermont. They moved to their present location in 1923. So they're coming up on their centennial. I love this, though. The course was laid out in 1923, after they moved to Bellows Falls, as a nine-hole course by Deacon Brown. Do you know Deacon Brown? I know. I've heard of uh, Deacon Palmer, but not Deacon Brown. No, not Deacon Palmer. So Deacon Brown, David Deacon Brown, was the winner of the 1886 Open, the British Open, 1886, 135 years ago. He taught golf to Queen Victoria, right? Guy's over there shaking his head. And apparently the layout of the course remains relatively unchanged other than the playing order of the holes and continuous course enhancements. So Deacon Brown... The 1886 British Open champion designs Bellows Falls in 1923. There is, unlike Florida, a lot of topographical change in Vermont, especially that part of Vermont. At one point, uh, I believe it was hole two, was basically just a giant bowl, and not a punch bowl. It was like the green was at the bottom of the bowl, and there was no way to not just walk down a hill into the hole. Loved that. I think it was four or five. You had to play across a golf, essentially, and uh, if you got it across, good job, and if you didn't, good job getting it out. I'm not a great golfer, so I had to hit out of this thing. It took me two strokes. You had to play across a golf? How would you describe a a golf? A a, chasm. Like a ravine or something? Yeah, like a ravine. A chasm, a golf, a ravine, yeah. 
uh, my two favorite holes, and you know, we don't obviously review courses, but I just loved the fact that seven and eight, seven, you go, you're playing onto an elevated green, a two-tiered fairway onto an elevated green, and behind the green was nothing but trees. And you, I showed you this photo. You're like, how was the grass? I said, well, it was terrible because you know, I mean, it wasn't terrible, but they had trouble growing grass there. I should say, because um, it's very hard to to grass growing with with no sunlight of course and just the visual of playing straight into the woods and then you walk through the woods you hear this little brook down below and you walk to a par three eighth hole where you play down so you've just played up now you're playing down and just those two holes back to back I think they were probably my two it was my favorite two hole set that I've played in quite a while I love those so Bellows Falls, cannot recommend it highly enough. Jerry Dennis will set your tea time. Paul Solinsky, the superintendent, may or may not give you uh, unsolicited but good swing advice if you're out there hacking away like I do. The Oh, from there, Matt, where'd you go? Yeah, the next course was, we have mentioned seven courses, or we'll mention seven courses on this episode. Four of them, incredibly, originally designed by Donald Ross. He's everywhere. And, he is And everywhere. this trip I'm about to go on, uh, two of the courses I'm going to see are Donald Ross designs. Yeah. So Carter Country Club, which is in Lebanon, New Hampshire, um, actually doesn't say when it opened. Oh, 1923. Here you go. Originally designed by Donald Ross in 1923. Again, same thing. A lot of topographical change. A lot of fun holes. Course was incredibly busy when I went. I played Bellows Falls at, I think, 9 in the morning. And I played uh, Carter at about 11 in the morning. And the difference in the number of rounds at that time, just striking. They were both in the middle of the week. I think it was a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And it was great to see everybody out there. I actually asked the starter whose name I did not get, uh, how many people would play on a given day, how many rounds they had last year. And I believe his exact quote was, there's no way to know how many rounds we had last year at Carter Country Club. Oh, okay. Well. Yeah, there are a lot of courses that are still very, very old school, pen and paper, right, right. walk-ups, yeah. don't collect data or customer right. information. And those courses are are charming. But, yeah, yeah. there's some really um, – it kind of – in golf, you, you have a lot of different uh, diversity in how operations mm-hmm. are run. If you're with a big management company, you probably have all sorts of metrics. If you're, it's a family-owned nine-holer course that – that is a part of the community, you may not have any metrics. No. And and it was just a it was a lovely nine. A lot of these, you know, you have the option to play 18. I just played nine. Uh I I liked Carter a lot. Uh I think I liked Bellows Falls just a bit more, but that's just me. You know, it's it's very subjective. But there's no way to go wrong with a little nine hole Donald Ross get on and off in about an hour twenty five, hour forty if there's folks ahead of you. Uh really, really fun Ninth hole, again, with all the topographical change, you got to go down a hill. You play out along the road, little par three. And then you have to, if you're in a cart, drive back up a hill. Or if you're uh, walking or you have a push cart, you finish your round by walking up a fairly steep hill back to the parking lot and the clubhouse. So so the ninth hole plays uphill? No, the, the you finish downhill. Okay. But when you're done, you have to walk your clubs back up hill. Not to hijack the conversation yeah. here, but one of the 
I'll say it. One of the greatest golf courses I've ever been to, Hamilton Golf and Country Club in on Hamilton, Ontario. Okay. I was there doing a project with the 2019 Canadian Open. Wow, that was the last Canadian Open that's been played. They've missed it two years in a mm-hmm. row. So the 18th hole on their championship course uh, is an amazing walk up to the clubhouse, and the walk is so steep. And it's kind of an amphitheater setting, which is great for tournament golf and probably great for member golf too, because you can sit up at the clubhouse and watch people play that hole. But uh, it's a steep walk up, but they actually had a tow rope too for people that needed help. Tremendous, yeah, yeah. There were definitely some hills in Vermont. You know, I'm I'm not in great shape at the moment, but I've run a lot of miles in my life. I ran high school and college cross country. I have no problem with hills, and there were hills where. With my little Sunday bag on my back, I had, you know, my foot, my feet are going out to the side, out going out wide to to get up these hills. No Do you want to tell our listeners where you got your quote unquote little Sunday bag? I mean, I got it at the cradle. It is one of the coolest bags I've yeah. ever seen. It's, a, it's just a little title. I was there when Matt the, purchased the it in the Pinehurst yeah. Pro Shop. Yeah. And he's gotten good use out of it. I think yeah. I think everybody needs I think I need a bag like that. I think everybody I, needs a little short course nine holer bag. Well they had they had the the beautiful canvas bags that they give you to play uh those rounds. They were selling those, and I think those were like seven hundred dollars. Like that's ah, not in the budget at the moment. <laughs> I think it spent you like could have, you could have expensed it. I'm not sure Dave would have noticed. Uh, I can't expense that. Uh, the last course that I visited on the Vermont swing, I'd planned to play five. I just, I ran out of steam. I enjoyed, uh, spending time with my wife too much and she's not a golfer. So yeah. Unlike some of us, Matt has a good family balance and, yeah. and won't devote a large part of his trip to golf. Although I'm getting better at that. When I yeah. go away with Lindsay, I don't bring the clubs. Yeah. I mean, the plan was to play a different nine hole every morning, but at a certain point I just, I enjoyed Going on the walks or going on the runs, I finished a couple of books. And so uh, sacrificed two other courses, which will remain unnamed. Maybe I'll get there at some point. I'll just say they were within an hour's drive of Heartland, Vermont, and were nine-holers. So the last one, it's a familiar course to regular devoted readers of golf course industry, and that is John P. Larkin Country Club in Windsor, Vermont. I kind of stumbled across the club in reporting a story for the February issue. They wound up being the cover story in March. The folks there are tremendous. It is now officially a hundred year old course, uh, not under this name, but Windsor Country Club is a hundred years old now. Now what's now John P. Larkin. The former interim turned superintendent was a retired high school athletics director and dean of students named Bob Hingston. Uh, we finally met him and had dinner with him and his wife, Candy, who could not have been nicer. Uh, lives basically right across the course at this point. He moved across in 1999. They joined in the late 70s before they had kids. Their son, Ryan, actually just basically runs uh, the operations now, essentially runs the clubhouse, but really runs the operations. He's a heck of a golfer as well, Ryan Hingston. Met him. I finally met Travis uh, Williams, who is the superintendent. Great guy. Uh, had worked on his family farm, I think, for the last 10 or 12 years before getting back into golf. Their summer crew is kind of led by a, gosh, how old is he, 19-year-old named Dylan DeChamp. Dylan has been described as a a stud and a rising star by folks at John P. Larkin. He is a freshman, or he's about to go into a sophomore year at Penn State. He's at the, uh, not on the main campus, he's at the, I think it's the Berks County campus. Yep, where Dr. Mike Fidanza works. 
Uh, so Dylan's Dylan's doing good work. I played most of my round there with him. And unfortunately, it rained on league night because apparently on men's night, which is Thursday, they have this little half wraparound wooden porch. You can see down another ravine to another hole. And apparently people just drink beer, have fun, cheer people on. It rained and there were probably eight or 10 folks, some of whom work at the club, some of whom don't. And at one point we all just hit off a mat and did closest to the pin instead of league night. It was a blast. It was everything that small town golf should be. Windsor's about, I think, 5,000 people, if that. Uh, it's right off the highway. You can almost see the town, the downtown from the club. Uh, it's, it's right between, uh, there's an Amtrak line and then the Connecticut River right next to it. Just a tremendous little 40-acre, nine-hole local golf course. Great people. Could not have loved it anymore. And, uh, and and they flattered me. The headline to the March story was Green Mountain Magic. I get there, and I don't know if it was Bob Hingston or, or somebody else, had made up kind of a technical fabric T-shirt with the John P. Larkin logo on the front. And on the back, it said Green Mountain Magic. I took a photo. I sent it to you. I said, have, has a golf course industry headline ever been adapted into a T-shirt? You said, no, but I love it. Do they sell them in the pro shop? I don't think so. I think it's crew only. I have one in my bag. I was going to say, I, I was hoping you came back with one. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, I haven't worn it on a run yet, but I probably will uh, this weekend. So, Matt, you got to get away from it all. Mm-hmm. You went to Vermont and New Hampshire and played a few nine-hole golf courses. Did you have any awakenings, any spirit of the game moments up there? It's just nice to walk. I've always been a fan of walking. I've been a fan of walking uh, since you and I started working together. Uh, almost two and a half years ago. I think it's it's just a more pure way to play the game. And this is not a screed against carts. They're an important part of the game. Some people actually physically need a cart. They cannot play without it. Uh, but if you're able-bodied and, and you have an option between using a cart and walking, you know, maybe not every round, but every other round or every third round or every fourth round or something, just walk. It's a different way to see the course. You're seeing the course as the architect intended. You're seeing the course as the superintendent and the crew a lot of times see it while they're maintaining it. Uh, it's it's uh, it's just the proper way, I think, to, to view a golf course. Plus, it's quicker to find your shot, and you're going to wind up walking probably a little less if you're walking a straight line than if you're following the cart path and walking 40 or 50 yards from the, the cart or more after every single shot. So. Nine holers and short courses are so important yes. to the game of golf. Yes, they absolutely We're are. here at the end of the podcast. I'm sure that's a conversation for another day, but we do uh, try to cover those type of courses in the magazine. We have mm-hmm. a bi-monthly series called Short Course Stories, and I'm really excited about the one I'm going to visit here in a few days in North Carolina, which will be our November Short Course Stories. So, uh, and if you are the whole nine hole short course option, makes it much more time friendly for a lot of people that are crunched on time. Mm-hmm. I don't think I played around over an hour, 45 minutes. If you are shameless plug time, if you are a uh, current past or potentially future advertiser with the magazine, and you want to attach your name to a great editorial series, if you want to sponsor short course stories, we're not going to say no. So if you have an interest in short courses uh, for whatever reason, whatever segment of the market you're in and you want to work with us on that 
I think we'd be happy to uh, happy to have that be a sponsored uh, part of the magazine. We're going to publish it one way or the other. But... So if Matt's plug here and plea for a sponsor, not a plea, would actually come to fruition, and we found one because of somebody listening to this podcast, Matt will should get the commission for that. Nah, I know Andrew Hurricane Hatfield wouldn't want to hear that. <laughs> He's getting married and, w- next and with year. your commission check. We can send you back to Vermont, and you can buy that canvas bag that you saw in the pro, pro shop for $700. How about that? <laughs> I don't know if I can, in good faith, buy a, a, a beautiful Sunday bag like that. It's a beautiful, beautiful bag. Just, uh, I don't know. Any other closing thoughts from your journey? Yeah, I had only spent about an hour of my life in Vermont before we went up. Uh, we went on a road trip in 2012, my wife and I, Carolyn, did, uh, where we visited 45 states. It was basically to 120 some odd minor league ballparks in five months, and we were not going to a game in Vermont because at the time they only had a short season team, the Lake Monsters, and we were not doing short season teams. But we were right there. We were driving. I think we were in Massachusetts or I don't remember. Maybe we were in New York, and we were so close to Vermont. We had the morning. We literally drove across the border, had breakfast, and went on our way, and had not been back in nine years. And I cannot wait to go back to Vermont. Uh, Heartland was a charming little town. Windsor was an incredible small town. And then we went up to Burlington, which is the home of the University of Vermont, right on Lake Champlain. And before we left town, Carolyn was looking at real estate prices, half joking, because we're in no position to move at the moment, the next 15 or 20 years. But there is no way we can afford anything decent in Burlington at the moment. Maybe real estate prices will come down, but just an incredible college town. Absolutely loved Burlington. If folks are looking for a vacation spot, I cannot recommend Windsor, Heartland, Burlington, Vermont highly enough. I loved it. I thought it was a very refreshing week. I'm so glad you were able to take that that trip, Matt. Uh, it's important to get away and experience different things and finding mm-hmm. the time to do it will help you when you get back to your job, whoever you are, wherever you may work. So thanks to everybody for listening. And if anybody from Dartmouth is listening, get your act together and oh, get that golf course operational so again. So sad. And if anybody is listening still at this point in the podcast, use your vacation days. It's included as part of your salary and benefits. You're entitled to those vacation days. Don't leave them hanging. Take vacation days. They're good for your physical and mental health. Thanks to everybody for listening, and we will be back in a few weeks with a a story about an old guy going to a bachelor party and then visiting some golf courses. Oh, Lord. Thanks again. 